Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. This Maundy Thursday sermon was given by Senior Pastor, Rev. Dr. Ray Hilton. If you'd like more information about First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, please visit firstpresevanston.org. Our scripture reading tonight is from the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. You can find that in the New Testament section of our Pew Bibles on page 165. Please join me in a prayer for illumination. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us this evening. Amen. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our text this evening is, a, is an interesting one. And when I was planning for our teaching series over the last weeks as we entered the season of Lent, I've really been looking forward to this text because I think this is a, a very fitting word for the times in which we find ourselves. I've been a pastor for quite some time, and uh, as I have surveyed the landscape of my, my time as a pastor, I continue to see the reality of what Christian community is all about. I continue to see Christian community being, being withered. It's withering and it's being displaced by a variety of societal forces. The pandemic that we've been going through has not helped us. But long before the pandemic, we've been watching a steady erosion of what it means to be part of a community. And then when you couple that with the conversioning, the continued growth of what it means to be an individual, untethered from any kind of uh, accountability structures where we are free individuals to make any choice that we want and to fulfill our desires. When you, when you add that up with other factors, we continue to watch the steady decline of what it means to be a community. So I'm glad that we're reading this text, but there is also a challenge for us tonight and it has to do with 
much of the lectionary readings that we've been doing this whole Lenten season that we've been on, sometimes the texts and how they're organized, they feel rather arbitrary. And the result for me, the preacher, and sometimes the result for you, the reader, is that we run the risk of missing the main point of the text. And I think tonight's reading is a classic example because if, instead of assigning verses 17 through 34, we get this very clipped section, verses 23 through 26, and consequently, many, many Christians recognize, one thing they recognize is that Paul is retelling the story of the institution of the Lord's Supper. But these few verses, 23 through 26, do not give any sense of why. Why suddenly Paul begins to retell the story and the words that Jesus spoke on a night like tonight. So I want us to look at the specific conditions that motivated Paul to retell the very words that Jesus used on the last night of his life. Paul retells the story of Jesus in the upper room, I think, to address a sickness and then to provide an antidote to the sickness. And you say, well, what is the sickness? So as I was preparing myself, I went back to the very beginning of Paul's letter. As he wrote that letter to the church, he said in chapter 1 and verse, 12, verse 10, he said, Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same purpose. Division is the sickness facing this Corinthian church. And then you go back to our chapter for tonight, chapter 11, and start up at verse 17 and 18, and he says, now in the following instructions, I do not commend you, he says to the church, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but it's for the worse. For to begin with, when you come together as a church, Paul says, I hear. Maybe he was hearing from Chloe, Maybe he was hearing from other leaders in the church. I hear that there are divisions among you. And then he says, to some extent, I believe it. This sickness of division affected every aspect of their church life. And we see it even in their celebration of the Lord's Supper. And I think that is why Paul says, when you come together, it's not for the better, but it's for the worse. Your services do more harm than good. And I try to put myself in the story, and that would be so difficult to hear. So how did this sickness affect them? Well, as you know from your reading of that letter to that church, this church was filled with people who were proud, arrogant, dismissive. And I will quickly add that every church has areas for healing and growth. Every church. In fact, C.S. Lewis famously said that the only place besides heaven that is free from pain and suffering of relationships is hell. And so if you stick around long enough in any church, in any time, in any place, you will see or experience pain and suffering. And yet despite this reality, 
Jesus loves the church. He loved it so much that as Paul reframes it in, Gal- in Ephesians 5, he gave himself for the church, his bride. You know, earlier the, today, I met a pastor from Indiana who happened to be here for a visit with Carol Weinberg. And this pastor told me he had just retired from 35 years of pastoral ministry, and it was in the same church. I was so impressed that I started doing this to him, and he laughed, because it takes a lot of staying power, not just for pastors, but for all of us, to remain in community. And his first question to me which was rather atypical. Most pastors, when they ask me, how large is this church or how many are on staff? This pastor asked me this question. He said, how's the church doing? Are you healthy? And I quickly responded, well, you know, health is relative. It's just like the human body. Maybe right now you're feeling well and then tomorrow you have the sniffles. Or tomorrow you're feeling well and by the end of the next week, you have a full-blown flu or something going on. And I said to him, health is relative. We're always dealing with things affecting our health. But our goal, I said to him as a church, is always to move to a healthier place. So what caused the Corinthians church to be less than healthy? And the problem that Paul is addressing at Corinth is not, as many of us would think, some kind of debate that they were having about sacramental theology. Rather, seems to be a problem of social relations within the community. And I think if we don't understand this part of the reading, this part, what we just heard read this evening could simply not land where it should. Because apparently the sharing of the symbolic bread and the cup of the Lord's Supper It was occurring, and it always occurred, as part of a common meal, an agape feast. And so when Paul refers to the Lord's Supper at Corinth, he's not talking about a liturgical ritual celebrated in a church building. At this early date of this letter, there were no separate church buildings in Corinth. There were no separate buildings for Christian worship. The Lord's Supper was an actual meal eaten by the community in a private home, not in some church space or some large public space. I went back and read one of the commentaries from my New Testament professor, Richard Hayes, and he points out the following. He says, archaeological study of Roman houses from this period has shown that the dining room or the the trilinicum of a typical villa could accommodate only nine persons who would recline at the table for meal. Other guests would have to sit or stand in the atrium which might have provided space for another 30 or 40 people, and the host of such a gathering would, of course, be one of the wealthier members of the community. And it's reasonable to assume, therefore, that the host's higher status friends would be invited to dine in the triclinium with lower status members of the church, such as freedmen and slaves, would be placed in the larger space outside. But then it gets worse. Richard Hayes says, because under such conditions, it was not unusual for the higher status guests 
in the dining room to be served better food, better wine than the other guests. And I was flying home from Jamaica on Monday, and I had to walk through first class to get to steerage. And I looked at what they were serving the people in first class, and I said, oh, man. But it's just like being on the plane. Better food, better service. And so the more privileged members would be expected to receive more food and better food than the people, the sort of steerage folks standing out in the atrium. Some of the Corinthians who have greater resources are feasting then on their own food and wine. And so they said, look, this is my food. I don't need to wait until the folks out in the atrium are served. This is my food. While others, while they're inside the, that area of feasting, others have nothing. And they're going hungry. And as a result, Paul declares that contrary to what they may suppose, what they're eating is not in fact the Lord's Supper. It is their own private meal. Because, he says, you're humiliating part of your congregation. And this is not in keeping with the example of our Lord. And so what's the antidote to that kind of sickness? And in response then to that problem, Paul reminds the Corinthian church of the tradition that he had taught them. The tradition that I received, Paul said, and the tradition that I've handed over to you having to do with Jesus and his last meal with his disciples. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed or handed over took a loaf of bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the most striking feature in this little pericope that we just read of Paul's retelling of the tradition is the emphasis that he plays on memory. Do this, do this in remembrance of me. He says it twice. And the word remember, I think, links us all the way back to Passover. Exodus 12 and verse 14 where we read that the Passover is to be a day of remembrance for you, a day in which Israel would pause to remember and recall God's deliverance of his people from bondage. And in the same way, the Lord's Supper is to be an occasion when we gather as the people of God to remember God's action of deliverance, of salvation through Jesus Christ. And so Paul retells the story so as to spotlight the death of Jesus is the central meaning of the supper. And you say, well, why do they need to remember the death of Jesus as a community? Because when you think about the death of Jesus, when Jesus died for the, on the cross, he died not for the rich, not for the privileged, not for those who have access he died for the rich and the poor. He died for men and women. He died for those who were in the in crowd and those who were on the outside. That's the death of Jesus. He died for the whole world. It's a uniting kind of sacrifice. And what division does, it pulls the members of the community apart. Instead of being one, they become cliques. 
Instead of being one, they are atomized and they become individuals looking out for el numero uno. Instead of being one, they're protecting their turf. Instead of being one, they're jostling for greater influence, never thinking about the ties that bind them together. And when these ties that bind are missing, then community becomes fragmented, it becomes unstable, and it's unsustainable. So every time we come to the table, Paul says, remember, remember Jesus' death for us. It's the great equalizer. It's what binds us together. So I'm not naive. To live in community is not bliss. It's not perfection. To live in a real community is to put the good of others ahead of your own desires. And that's why I strongly believe that it's very difficult to be a Christian without being part of a community. And I, one, of the, one of the difficulties, and I talk to pastors all over the place, even in Jamaica, is that because we were all forced by the pandemic to pivot to an online format, it's become very comfortable for a lot of Christians all over the world. And when it's time to gather, I'll just stay home. It made sense during the pandemic. I'm not so sure now what, that, what all that means. And I'm not trying to guilt anyone. If you're watching us online, we're glad you're here with us. But it is something to think about. Because it is in community that we learn and we practice what it means to be in fellowship. It is in community that we learn and practice self-giving. We learn to tell the truth. We practice humility. We, we, we receive reproof and rebuke and encouragement. We, we learn what it means to be generous, to consider others better than ourselves. And most of all, we learn how to practice love and forgiveness. So it's not surprising that on that last night when Jesus was with his disciples and we heard it read in the John reading, Jesus said to the disciples, this is my commandment. This is my commandment. This is not a suggestion. This is my commandment that you love one another. And boy, I'm not always the most lovable person. And you're not always the most lovable person, but yet it's not based on our feelings. It's a commandment. If we're going to be in community, we're commanded to love one another. Jesus says, as I have loved you. When I think about the love of Jesus, Jesus didn't love you or me because we were, we were approximating perfection. Jesus didn't love you or me because we were at our best while we were still sinners. We're told Christ died for us. It is in the community that love becomes incarnated. And Jesus envisioned that his children would be known by our love. Not what we're against. Not our political positions. The politics of a believing community is the politics that Jesus gave to us in the Sermon on the Mount. Sure, we vote, 
and we participate in the politics of our community out in the world because I think that's part of what it means to, to, be, a, to, be, to be part of a, a civic community, if you will. But there's something different about the church. We don't allow politics to divide us. We don't allow race to divide us. We don't allow the, the, the wealth or the lack of wealth to somehow create these hierarchies among us. Love, love of God and our love for one another is what binds us together. And so as we come to this table this evening, I want you to understand, brothers and sisters, that we are a different community. As we come to this table, we're not like the world. And this is what Jesus envisioned, that the church and its love and in its practices would be this jewel shining in the darkness, city on a hill, light in the darkness, salt of the earth, and men and women would see our good works. If we are no different from the fractious elements in our in our cities, if we are no different from the violence, if we're no different from just how people see other human beings, we don't have a redeeming message. We're different. And we're bound together by this common gift of Jesus' death on the cross for us. And I would encourage you to go back home when you have some time and just read from verse 17 to 34 and just see how Paul then, in that context, how he talks about the Lord's Supper, how he talks about how some of us bring harm to ourselves when we eat and drink the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. I mean, it, it's just, it just all begins to make sense when you read it in that context. And so as we come to the table, my friends, I, I urge you, I urge you to think deeply about the gift of God's Son to you for us and allow that to reshape and reorient us in terms of how we relate one to the other in our community that we call First Prayers. That we call First Prayers. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and God's people say, Amen.